our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and today we're presenting stories about mortality because we like to keep it light and fun here at the Story Collider, as always. This theme makes me think of last September when the Story Collider was traveling through New Zealand. And in Christchurch at the Canterbury Museum, they have this whole exhibit dedicated to the explorer Ernest Shackleton, because like a lot of Antarctic explorers, he would stop in Christchurch to resupply on his way down there. So while I'm browsing this exhibit, there's this sort of school group there sitting in this big circle around a museum volunteer who's telling them about Shackleton. And I'm kind of listening as I browse the exhibits thinking, wow, I hope he's not going into too much detail here with these kids because some of this stuff is pretty grim. Like, it seems like every other day, some member of the crew (laughs) fell down a crevasse. Like, there's a real serious crevasse problem in Antarctica, it seems like. Next time you're there, look out. But then I hear him say to the kids, And Shackleton couldn't carry the extra weight of dog food for the sled dogs, so he decided not to bring any. And when a dog died of starvation, he would feed it to the other dogs. And I'm like, wow, okay, so he's going there. The children took the news, as you might expect. And I'm sorry, that was very grim. But to be fair, you are listening to a podcast titled Mortality. And if the school children of Christchurch, New Zealand can handle it, I think you can too. Our first story today is from Anthony Morgan. It was recorded in April 2018 at the Burdock Music Hall in Toronto, Ontario. The theme that night was Defining Moments. Um, so I, I love science. Um, I, I really love science. Like I would do almost anything in the name of science. Uh, so much so that in January of 2016, I was supposed to be in England, uh, being vacuum sealed to the bottom of an in-flight helicopter. Um, you know, science. Um, it was for a show called Outrageous Acts of Danger. Uh, And their whole thing is they find these crazy, um, insane science videos on YouTube, and then they find ways to make them more dangerous. Um, So I read a review on New York Times about the show that said that outrageous acts of danger uh, make science, quote, life-threatening. So you can imagine my mom was thrilled. Um, But I mean, I didn't didn't think it was a big deal, honestly. I was like, mom, it's life-threatening, it's not fatal, there's a difference. And, and I figured, like, honestly, there's no one more qualified in the world to do that than, than me. And so the obvious question there is, what qualifies a person to be vacuumed, uh, vacuum sealed to the bottom of an in-flight helicopter? And the obvious answer to that question is that that person has already been vacuum sealing themselves to other things. 
And it's it's a super easy process. Um, you just need like a, I just got garbage bags. You just make a big, almost like bed sheet out of it and, and you seal it airtight around your body and then you use like a hose to suck the air out um, and it will seal you against, you know, whatever you're against. And so more than once, I had done this in uh, downtown Toronto, um, in the core of downtown Toronto, specifically at about five o'clock on a Friday um, to a hat shop at the corner of Queen and Spadina. And... <laughs> Um, and my goal was really simple. I just I wanted to blow people's minds with science. Um, because I had had that happen for me like more times than I can count at the Ontario Science Centre. Um, if you have not been to the Science Centre, you should go. It's one of my favorite places on Earth. And I love it so much because it is there that I first really fell in love with science. That I, like, it was there that what science was, like... There are some exhibits that you've seen there like a thousand times, and you feel like you know how it works. You know how it goes. You know every little intricate detail of it. And then somebody can show you something with it that just like transforms the way that you see that thing. And you realize that, that like the whole world is like that, that everything it can be way more than you think it is if you just know how to look at it properly. And so that's the reason I loved working at the Science Center was that you get to do that for other people. You get to... Like, you get to blow their minds. You get to, that moment when you get to see the world change a little bit in somebody's eyes is magic. And, and every time that I got to see it, I got to relive that. And so some of my favorite people to mess with at the Science Center are the people that kind of don't want to be there at all. You know, like the, the, like the high school kids are like, what are you going to do with science? What are you going to do science for? And then you're like, like set them on fire with a Tesla coil and the, like their, their expression goes from and they're like just super excited, you know? Because they don't expect it. Like my favorite are people who do not expect to be on fire because then when you, when you set them on fire, then, and then it's fine, it's the best. So um, I love that feeling and I wanted to do it again. So um, that's, if you go to Queen of at about five o'clock on a Friday, you find... Like, the place is crawling with people who don't expect to be on fire. And so, um, so the plan was to uh, see... The experiment was really simple. We wanted to see if I could use atmospheric air pressure to seal me against the front window of this hat shop. And I learned two really important things from that experiment. Um, the first was that, yes, it is more than possible to do that. The 15 pounds per square inch is more than enough to seal you against the glass in a way that you cannot move. And the other really important thing I learned was that um, that process leaves very little to the imagination. Um, I did not anticipate that. Like, have you ever vacuum sealed, like, your fruits or your vegetables? You can see, like, every little dimple and crevice. And, you know, I'm not going to get too graphic about it, but just use your imagination. Don't use your imagination. It was, um, it was a really awesome experience. And we honestly, I, I didn't tell anybody that we were going to show up, you know, except for the hat shop owners. Um, but there were probably, like, 300 people that stopped to engage with us and ask questions. And, you know, I mean, a lot of the questions were like, you know, why are you doing this? Or things like, is someone making you do this? Like, um, but there were a lot of people who were just genuinely engaging with the science of it. They were, they were, it was one of the greatest experiences in my life because I got to watch like 300 people's world change a little bit. And, and it's, it's honestly, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And so I wanted to experience that again. I wanted to feel that again. And so I'm, I'm back on the phone with my mom 
um, because I was talking to my mom about, you know, this whole process, and I was like, she's, like, she's freaking out about it. And I'm like, mom, look, it's gonna be fine. They've got engineers and lawyers working on this. And she's like, what do they need lawyers for? And I was like, okay, good point. But, you know, they can't be completely reckless. It's a science show. It should be fine. Um, and so I guess she could tell that I was still gonna totally do this. Like, I was gonna do it. And she was panicking and she's trying to like save her son's life. And so, in a last ditch effort to get me to not do this or at least pause and think about it, she asked me a question that at the time felt very dramatic, but I think is one of the most profoundly important questions that we can ask ourselves. She asked me, Anthony, is this really how you want to die? <laughs> and, and I had to pause, you know, because like mostly because it's kind of weird like having your mom ask you that in like a threatening way. But also because it's just a really good question. I mean, one of the unescapable truths of life is death. We all have a limited time here on earth and we all have to make decisions about how we use that time. And in a lot of ways, your death can define you almost as much as your life can. I mean, if you think about a person like Martin Luther King, or, or the crew of the Challenger space shuttle. Um, so what my mom was really asking me is, is this how you want to define yourself? Is this how you want to be remembered? And so I paused, because there are like a thousand ways that you could answer a question like that. I started thinking about if I died tomorrow, what would people say about me at my funeral? And I figured, you know, people would say the normal, the nice things. You know, he was a nice guy, and, you know, he really loved science, and, and you know, he really wanted everyone else to love science. And, you know, he really, he never really shut up about science, um, and he never took off that damn red hat. I bet you, like, an infection from the hat is what killed him. Or they might, I mean, they might be nicer than that. But, like, I was afraid that that would be it. You know, that there would be nothing remarkable about my life. You think about a guy like, like uh, Neil Armstrong or Muhammad Ali. You just say those names and people know what it is that defines them. They had these astonishing achievements that could never be duplicated. And, and I was like, well, I'm never going to land on the moon. Like, what? I can't be the other guy to land on the moon. What can I do to be remembered. And, and then I, I was thinking, you know, it's gotta be out, extraordinarily outrageous or outrageously extraordinary because like if you think about it, how many people can name the third guy to land on the moon? It's crazy that we can't think of that. That guy landed on the moon. Like the first guy lands on the moon and like people are weeping and crying with joy, like this is the pinnacle of human achievement. And by the third guy, we're like, yeah, this is boring, we get it, okay? Like, okay, we've been there a couple times. And so I had this idea in my head that like this, something extraordinary, something to make you famous um, would be better than just being ordinary. Um, one of my favorite researchers, Brene Brown, I really like the way that she, she diagnoses it. She says that, Somehow, in our society, um, an ordinary life has become synonymous with a meaningless life. And I wanted a meaningful life. So I wanted 
to be extraordinary. You know, I wanted, I wanted to be like the, the guy in the movies, like, come on, follow me. And people would be like, who is that guy? He vacuum sealed himself to the bottom of a helicopter. Do what he says, you know? I figured like that that would make my life meaningful. And, and then I had something happen to me about a month ago. Um, it, was, it was a really weird experience. Um, I was standing in my kitchen and tears are just, they're just streaming down my face. And, and I know what you're thinking, it was not, it, was, it wasn't sad, it was actually a really, it was, I was insanely happy. Like I was just feeling really happy. They were, they were joy tears, you know? And, um, and I started just trying to sort of meditate on the experience and it was, I was just overwhelmed with this feeling of joy and happiness. And, and what, you know what I was doing? I was, I was just standing and washing dishes in my kitchen. That's it. Uh, the sun was shining into the kitchen and I was wearing a t-shirt of a Disney princess t-shirt that I got from my roommate because all of my shirts were filthy and I hadn't washed any laundry. And, and I was listening to a song that I just really liked. And I was overwhelmed by the realization that I was happy, that I, that I could be happy, and that it didn't have to have anything to do with helicopters or explosions or anything like that. That I needed so little to truly experience like profound happiness. It was, it was such a trip. And you know, if a defining moment is one that shapes the way that you look at the world and the way that you interact with it, then one of my most important defining moments was me washing dishes in my kitchen, joy crying in a Disney princess t-shirt that had in big sparkly letters, if the tiara fits. Yeah. <laughs> um, and learning that we can find meaning in our lives from moments big and small, is one of the most important things that I've ever learned because once you know that, like the opportunities for finding meaning in our lives are there everywhere. And who I am, like what a person is, is just a collection of moments like those. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm back on the phone with my mom. I didn't, I didn't have all that at the time. I was just, you know, still talking to her and I'm like, you know, mom, I'm going to, I'm not saying no, mom, I'm going to think about it, but um, let me get back to you. And I didn't ultimately end up doing it. I didn't end up, I did not end up vacuum sealed to the bottom of a helicopter. Um, but um, it's not that I wouldn't have, because I, I still probably, I, I totally would have. But like at the production, okay, the weird part is the production company, they called me and they're like, listen, unfortunately, Mr. Morgan, we're not going to be able to proceed with the, with the segment. And I was like, I don't understand. What do you mean? What happened? And they're like, well, for, uh, we can't comment on that for uh, legal reasons. I was like, no, that sounds sketchy. What does that mean? And, you know, just ever so faintly off in the distance, I could hear the whisper of my mom saying, I told you so. <laughs> and, and so if I'm honest, today I probably still would do it. Like if I had the chance to do it, I would be vacuum sealed at the bottom of a helicopter. But now I'm much more clear about the reason why. Um, and it's, it's not to be remarkable because like I've learned that if you want to be remembered for being remarkable, then you're going to have to do something more impressive than being just the third man on the moon. Cause that's not, that's not going to be enough. But, um, the reason that I would do it is that 
I still really love that feeling that I get when I get to see like somebody's world change in that like little moment and getting to share something like that with somebody and connect with them about it. It's, it's still something that brings me so much joy. You know, vacuum sealing myself to a building in Toronto gave me the chance to work with, with CBC and Daily Planet, start my own company. And I get to work with a lot of people that I really admire. Um, and I cannot express how grateful I am for the meaning genuinely that it has brought to my life. And so if I can't be vacuum sealed to the bottom of a helicopter, well, you know, that's okay. That's cool. Cause I can still have just as much fun, um, blowing stuff up at the science center or crying in my kitchen. So, so, uh, thanks. Anthony Morgan. Anthony is the creative director of Science Everywhere, an organization devoted to adult science entertainment. The mission is to build science culture through engaging science entertainment for TV, YouTube, and live events. He's also on the board of a makerspace and has a recurring segment on Daily Planet. Before we move on to our next story today, I wanted to share a quick idea with y'all. I've been thinking lately that it might be fun to read some mini stories from our listeners, that's you, between stories on the podcast, especially if you have a story that you'd like to share, but you don't live near one of our cities or have a story, but maybe it's too short or you have crippling stage fright or something like that. So I would really like to hear from all of you about your experiences with science. So if you have something you'd like to share, email a very short, just like two paragraphs to stories at storycollider.org and put podcast in the subject line. And I might be able to share it with all of you here on the podcast. And if it inspires you, some of our upcoming themes are surprises, loneliness, me versus my brain, bright ideas, and help. So if any of those inspire you, send me your many stories. I'd really love to read them. And once again, that email address is stories at storycollider.org. Hope to hear from y'all. So our second story today is from Elorm Avakame. It was recorded in April 2018 at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts at our show in conjunction with the Cambridge Science Festival. A few years ago, I met a woman named Marge. She had this uh, reddish-brown hair that she cut in kind of like this cute pixie cut that framed her face. Uh, she was about in her 40s or so, although she looked much older than that. She was really warm and really sweet, so the kind of person that you just want to reach out and give a hug, but also really frail, so the kind of person that you wouldn't want to squeeze too tight. Um, Marge, all in all, I, was an unforgettable woman uh, in my life. And I mean that to say I, I probably will literally never forget her because she was the first person I'd ever known uh, who knew that she was about to die. Marge and I met in the hospital I was a third-year medical student, and she was my patient, uh, the patient assigned to me. Um, and as a third-year medical student, I had spent two years prior uh, studying medicine in classroom from textbooks. Um, and so I thought that I had wrapped my mind around death. We talked about death a bunch in class, and we talked about what it would be like to lose a patient and how to walk a family through that process. And actually, by that point in school, I had seen a person who was dead. I'd been with a doctor who was called to um, pronounce someone brain dead. 
and watched as he shone a light in into her eyes, um, eyes that didn't have any signs of life. But this was my third year of school and my first year taking care of real patients. And so although I had thought I had wrapped my mind around what death meant, um, I hadn't actually known a person who was on their way to dying. But Marge was. She told me so matter-of-factly. Years of alcoholism had waged a war of attrition against her liver, uh, which was finally surrendering. She wasn't eligible for a transplant because she hadn't been able to be abstinent for the 60-day period required to be eligible. And so she was kind of out of options. She tried, but she'd failed. And then so did her liver. I was a medical student, and so my job on the team was to visit her every morning and to check her vital signs and to do like a physical exam, uh, things like pushing on her belly to see if she was in pain. Being a medical student is a strange kind of existence in the hospital because uh, you are the only member of the team that actually has nothing of value to offer the patient. Uh, you know nothing, uh, you're pretty much uh, just there to learn. In fact, it's the patient who offers you value, not the other way around. It's the patient who allows you to learn from their body. Marge taught me most of what I know about a disease called uh, cirrhosis, which is a kind of liver failure that can happen um, sometimes as a result of chronic alcohol use. And she had so many of the classic signs and symptoms of cirrhosis. Her, her abdomen was really distended, which means really large and full of fluid. Uh, her skin was permanent, permanently staled, a dull shade of yellow uh, from the waste products that had built up in her blood. She was often drowsy because of the effect that those same waste products were having on her brain. And so she would fall asleep mid-sentence and you'd have to wake her up and remind her what she was talking about. So she would finish the sentence. In many ways, uh, Marge was like a living textbook. But of course, she was more than a, a disease model. Uh, she was alive, if not for long. In fact, sometimes I would forget that she was sick. Sometimes after you know, we'd shared a good laugh or she told me uh, a story from her better days, um, I'd have to remind myself that she was dying. And I had this picture in my head of what dying people looked like. Really old, uh, barely breathing, semi-conscious. And Marge was none of those things. And that was bizarre for me. And it was confusing. And it was frustrating because it felt like she was losing her life uh, because she had a disease that we just didn't know how to treat yet, which had caused another disease that was causing her body to shut down. And that just felt so unfair. I actually often felt guilty leaving Marge's room because I felt like, again, like I had nothing to offer her. She was opening her private space to me. Um, she, in her kindness, was letting me learn on her body, and I had nothing in the way of a cure or even any form of treatment to offer her. I wasn't even really a doctor. So I often walked away feeling guilty um, after having been with her, but that changed one day when she asked me for something good to drink. So I should tell you something else about being a medical student, um, which is that 
One of the most important things to know about the hospital is where all of the snacks are. Uh, and this is because the senior doctors have gotten used to going without eating, but when you're first starting out, you are hungry all of the time. So I mentioned not having had any expertise. I lied. What I did have was expertise about the snacks, the refreshments, which floors had graham crackers, which floors had saltines and the like. This is all critical information. And so when Marge asked me for something good to drink, I thought to myself, well, actually, I just invented this cocktail out of hospital cranberry juice and hospital ginger ale, which are independently not that tasty, <laughs> but together, fantastic. And so I said, well, you know, I just, I just made this cocktail uh, that I think is pretty good. I'm pretty proud of it. I could make it for you if you'd want to try it. And so Marge looks at me and she goes, Jesus, I haven't had a good cocktail in forever. And we look at each other and we're like, we're not really sure if it's okay to joke about alcohol, <laughs> given that she's dying from alcoholism. Uh, but then we laughed. And so now I'm like fully in role, right? Because I feel like finally there's something I can do. So I'm like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cranberry ginger ale on the rocks coming right up. So I go and I grab the cranberry and the ginger ale and I get, you know, two plastic cups and fill them halfway with ice and... Uh, uh, I find that bartenders do this cool thing where, for some reason, I think as a bartender, when you're pouring drinks, you have to pour it from a really high height. So I did that thing, too, and I cracked open the cranberry juice and poured it from a high height. And uh, so now we've got both of our cocktails, and we grab them, and we clinked our glass, although they were plastic, so it wasn't much of a clink. It was more like a thud. We thudded our glasses, and we drank them down. And just before we drank, uh, Marge says to me, cheers to the good life. So we drank our drinks, and uh, I cleaned them up and threw out the cups and everything. And uh, that was the first day that I left her room not feeling guilty. It felt like I had finally found a way to repay the kindness that she had offered me. Like I had finally found something in that brief moment of something approaching normalcy uh, that I could give to her in exchange for everything that she was giving me. And it was nice not to feel guilty. Our time together went on that way, and day after day, uh, we developed something of a friendship. I tried to, I, I, visited, I visited her every morning, which was my job, but then I also tried to spend uh, as much free time as I could with her, and uh, she told me uh, stories about her life, um, and she welcomed me in. And I, I remember one day, I walked into the room, and she is flipping through a catalog of dresses, and I asked her what she was looking at, and she told me that she was trying to decide which dress she wanted to wear at her funeral. She would often say, uh, I'm glad I get advance notice about this whole thing because most people don't get the chance to make sure that their funeral goes exactly how they want it to. So you know, I sat in my seat next to her bed and we're flipping through uh, the catalog and we decide on this yellow floral dress uh, because she felt like it went well with her eyes, which were light brown, and I agreed to illustrate how bizarre this whole exercise was, um, neither of us remembered to consider that her eyes would probably be closed during her funeral. Our time together went on this way with more conversations and more cocktails and more morbid funeral planning. 
And something about the finality of her predicament uh, left me thinking about and feeling the human weight of medicine and of science more broadly. I thought about what it took to gather the body of knowledge that I'd come to know about her condition, you know, about the cell biologists who discovered what happens to a liver cell when it's damaged, about the physiologists who charted the natural course of her condition, about the clinical researchers who were developing treatment protocols and parameters. I thought about the fact that all of those scientists' work was passed down through the ages and found its way into my textbooks and eventually into my brain. And in thinking about that, I realized that the highest calling of scientific inquiry is the betterment of human life. That beneath the scientific method is a scientific mission. I felt the urgency of that mission uh, sitting by Marge's bedside because I knew that although Marge would be lost, that there would be other patients like Marge whose outcomes could be radically altered by the next discovery or the next one after that. And as someone who's becoming a physician, this is what excites me about science, that it has the power to cure disease, that it has the power to change lives, that it has the power to turn tragedy into triumph. I've come to believe that at its height, science is a service to humanity. The last time I ever saw Marge, uh, she was asleep. I had uh, worked together with the social workers to find a hospice bed to discharge her to, which means that there was nothing left to be done for her in the hospital. And so we were sending her to a home to be comfortable in her final days. I was sad about that, but I was also happy for her in a way. She was in her last moments, but she was living them full of spirit, and that felt like something. I was sitting there by her bed, and I wanted to wake her up because I, you know, I wanted to tell her one last joke. You know, I wanted to have one last cocktail. Uh, I wanted to thank her for what she taught me, which is what it means to walk with someone through their last moments. But she was sleeping peacefully, and peace was hard for her to come by, and... I thought it'd be selfish of, my, of me to wake her, so I didn't. But just before leaving her room for the last time, I stood by her bed. I grabbed her hand gently so as not to wake her. And I was standing there trying to think of something to say that would be an adequate farewell. I couldn't come up with anything. But suddenly I realized that there was only one thing that made sense to say. Cheers. That was Elorm Avakame. Elorm is a doctor of medicine and master of public policy candidate at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. He is also a Sheila C. Johnson Leadership Fellow at Harvard Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership. He aspires to a career in pediatrics with a subspecialty concentration in adolescent medicine. 
Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Jesse Hildebrand, Misha Gajewski, Christine Gentry, Ari Daniel, and Katie Wu. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Burdock Music Hall and the Oberon Theater for hosting these shows, and to Death for making us appreciate life or something really deep like that. Thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>